Yeah, no, Dan Bontier, who invented the urinanine gap, was one of my attendings in fellowship. So, like, I totally get this getting dragged for urinanine gap thing. I think it's important to, like, learn the understanding behind it. But, like, am I doing it when I see these patients? Not not really, no. And I hope he's not listening. <laughs> you know, I don't think we should air this episode. <laughs> at all. Because we're, like, honestly, like, if it if the Riverside recording doesn't work out, this we is okay. Because yeah. we're bashing Fina, we're getting rid of the urinanine gap, and we haven't gotten to your and pH, which I'm about to tell you to forget. <laughs> so. Brain physiology, a complex yet logical and internally consistent system that maintains our precious bodily fluids. You are listening to an accounting of our two-year mission to explore and develop a functional mental model of the workings of the kidney and its associated functions. To understand completely how the kidney accomplishes its primary mission of establishing and maintaining homeostasis. This is Channel Your Enthusiasm, the Burton Rose Cocktail Club and Variety Hour. My name is Joel Toff, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight, we are discussing chapter 13. Hold on, I know the name of it. It's The Meaning and Applications of Urine Chemistries. Now, this is interesting because this is actually the very beginning of part three in the book. Does anybody remember part one and part two, what those were called? No. So part one... (laughs) Part one was called renal physiology. We are done with that. And part two was regulation of water and electrolyte balance. And we are done with that. And so now we are on to the physiologic approach to acid base and electrolyte disorders. We're finally getting to the disease, right? We are done with physiology and we're into pathology. Tonight we have a full house. Uh, I want to have everybody introduce themselves. Anna? Anna Gaddy. I'm a nephrologist at the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. Roger? Roger Rodby. I'm a nephrologist at Rush University Medical Center Chicago. Melanie? Melanie Honig. I'm a nephrologist. That seems to be the theme tonight <laughs> at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School. Amy? Um, I'm Amy Yao. I am also a nephrologist at the Ohio State University. JC. Well, I'm Carlos Villas, nephrologist at Auctioner Health in New Orleans. Letty. Leticia Rolong, nephrologist at University of California, San Francisco. And Josh. Josh Waitsman, I'm a nephrologist and scientist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. This chapter is the meaning and application of urine chemistries. It's kind of a tiny little pocket chapter. Uh, anybody have any opening thoughts on it? I was surprised it was this small. Yeah, it's the smallest chapter in the book, which is a little bit ironic since this is kind of what nephrology is about, being able to analyze things. The, the subsequent chapters are going to go into much more detail, I know, but uh, as an introduction, it's pretty short. What I was going to say is I'm, I'm just glad I'm re- we're reviewing this together because every time that we're, we're teaching a lot of these equations and how to use urine lice, it always it seems like there's always so many mutations like, well, except this and that. So I'm looking forward to learning pearls from you all how to explain like, well, this is why we're not always using, you know, like TTKG and things like that. Anna, you're giving a talk on this. I was just going to say, you'll notice that I am just going to be taking notes because I'm hoping you all have something <laughs> intelligent to say because I don't yet. Where, where There's very you, little data. Where are you in your lectures? They, they're, they're, they're due in two days. They are, yeah. Mm-hmm. You'll notice I was in Mexico for the entire last week. So, it's a yeah. perfect time and place to do your I, I have them all outlined, but yeah. 
I feel like we need a quote here, like a, I don't know it, but like a Homer Smith quote about how, I mean, he opens with this in the chapter, how there's no normal urine values because no, there's oh, there are normal the blood reason, values, right? The there's something like that. There are normal blood values is there's no normal urine values. Yeah. That's what yeah. I was looking for. Thank you. I think this is the part where we become endocrinologists, where we're always like, mm-hmm. it's inappropriately low. Like, it's inappropriately normal. I thought the one thing about the chapter was that it was interesting, not that it was so short, but like, what else in a new edition of this book will supplement this chapter? Like, there's a urine chemistries chapter. Will there be like a biomarkers chapter? Will there be like a POCUS volume status chapter? Like, these are like the, the clinical information we ha- we get that we're using to base decisions on about diagnosis and treatment. Do we imagine that there will be more short chapters like this in future versions or in a perfect world would there be? Yeah, yeah, I I suspect so. I I also thought he seemed constrained rather than expansive in terms of what you could do with these electrolytes. Like I thought, and we'll get to it, like I thought table 13, like I have a lot of comments on like other reasons to measure these electrolytes that he didn't seem to recognize. Just that I think some of the problem is that it turns into a lot of, well, what about this scenario? Well, what about this scenario? Well, what about, you know, so I guess maybe brevity is more important in that context because there's a lot of possibilities there. So the chapter, kind of the point of the chapter says the measurement of urine electrolyte concentrations, osmolality, and pH help diagnose some conditions. And then he leans into exactly what Melanie was saying, that there's no fixed values. And that the reality is that the kidney varies the rate of excretion to match intake and endogenous production. And he gives the example of somebody that's Secreting 125 millivolts of sodium a day. And he says that can be normal if the patient is euvolemic on a normal diet and wildly inappropriate in a patient who is volume depleted. And so it's, you can't just look at the urine, the urine value. You have to look at the urine value in context of what the patient is going through, which is, I know Anna said, you know, inappropriate for the kid, for the situation is exactly right. And then he gave the advantages of the urine chemistries. He says they are useful. They are simple. They are widely available. Usually a random sample is adequate and that if needed, you can do a 24-hour sample to give additional context. And that 24-hour sample, the example he leans into is somebody who has hypokalemia and you're trying to determine whether there's extra renal potassium loss. And he says that the urine potassium should be less than 25 milliequivalents per liter, but if the patient has concurrent volume deficiency and their urine output is only 500 milliliters, the urine potassium concentration could still be appropriate as high as 40 milliequivalents per liter given the slow urine volume in that situation. There's a case where 24-hour urine collection would be more informative than the, just the urinary concentration. Yeah, I thought this was interesting because I actually really try hard to almost never order 24-hour urines, at least as an outpatient, because they're just so difficult to get unless I'm doing like a little link and I need it for like a stone you know, stone profile analysis or something like that. But even when I do confirmatory testing for primary hair auto and like salt load them, I think like they say you're supposed to do like a 24-hour urine sodium, but I sometimes just get a random urine sodium. I know it varies with your diet. Like, you know, if you just had a salty meal and then you were fasting for eight hours, it might not be as accurate, but I just feel like it's just so difficult to get 24-hour urines as an outpatient. Like, what do you, you just you like just keep it in your fridge and you have to come back the next day? It's just like... I don't know. I think it's impractical for the patient. It's not only impractical, it's notoriously inaccurate because people don't do them very well. Yeah. It's what's 
replaced 24-hour urine in, in many measurements now is, is a concentration relative to the creatinine. And it gives you a, somewhat of an idea of your, your excretion relative to a gram of creatinine with the assumption that's about a day's worth of you know production. And it, it's worked out pretty well for most things. This chapter doesn't talk about uh, transtubular potassium gradient. Um, it is in the book later on, but it's not here. Uh, but I don't think this book talks about potassium creatinine ratio, which is something that's pretty commonly used now when you're evaluating uh, hypokalemia. So, but I think that's what that's one of the reasons that uh, gotten away. They're they're tedious, they're horrible to do, and people don't do them very well. And bad information is always worse than no information. Yeah, I have changed my the, my approach to twenty four hour urines throughout, throughout my career. Currently, I'm not doing many of them. You know, five six years ago, I was doing them. Early on, I was, and they I kind of stopped. You know, one of the examples that you mentioned, Amy kidney stones. You know, there is actually this very uh, it's a seminal paper that I think is on up today with a little graph showing that if you do a forty eight hour urine collection or even a seventy two hour urine collection, you're more likely to catch the abnormality compared to a twenty four hour urine collection. So early on in my career, I was doing I was gung ho forty eight hour to all my patients, right? And it's just so inconvenient, you know, uh, the patients will come and do it wrong and it will just, or they will not have enough uh, containers at home to collect all the urine. So they have to redo it, etc. So I have fallen back to the just uh, 24 hour. And the way I do it right now is for, for stones is if a 24 hour gives me the answer, I work with that information. If it doesn't, I may pursue the 40 hour. And outside of that, I do random values. And if the random still gives me an unclear answer, then I would pursue a 24 for our obviously many different indications, but that's kind of my general approach. Whenever I get the 48-hour stone profile, Litholink provides the results as two 24-hour results. And I'm always stunned at the variability between the two. I'm like, this is one patient on a single diet. And the, the numbers are usually pretty significantly different so that, you know, I always look at them like, if I were only to look at one of these, I could really be misguided in terms of what type of advice I would give them in terms of sodium intake or uh, urine volume would be the other one that seems to vary uh, tremendously. From what I could find, there are no published studies which look specifically at which is better, one versus two 24-hour urine samples for initial metabolic testing in stone formers. Many experts prefer two samples as opposed to one because your urine values may change with diet, fluid intake, um, day to day, and on the initial evaluation, the clinician may be better able to assess factors which drive stone risk in individual patients if they have two urine samples to look at. However, 24-hour urine samples are notoriously difficult to obtain. In one study of collections done specifically for kidney stones, about a third were considered inadequate based on urine creatinine. I will say this number is probably higher than what I experience in mine clinic, but that's what's out there. Additionally, the majority of 48-hour urines, unless patients are specifically told, are collected at home, um, when on the weekend, and not at work, and may or may not reflect their actual urine profile during the workday. In the pediatric population of whom 24-hour urines may not be able to be collected, random urines can be obtained, although random urines are probably less accurate than the 24-hour urines when looking at overall and long-term risk factors for kidney stones. From the limited studies out there, albeit with a low level of evidence, patients should be stone-free for at least 28 days, some say ideally three months, to allow for recovery from any intervention and resumption of normal dietary habits. And there is some data that the presence of stone urine material itself may actually alter the urine profile. However, this may or may not be possible in a patient with a heavy and recurrent stone burden, and I typically will wait at least a few weeks after their last intervention, regardless if they have residual stones or not, to collect the urine profile.
I also think it's important if you, since we're talking about 24 hour urines, I actually think expectations are important. So when you're talking with patients, if you lead them to believe that they'll do one one time and that will be it. There's a lot of disappointment if something comes back funny. Whereas if you say, we're going to do this from time to time, we may need to do two, I think that works a little better. I haven't done a 24-hour in except for stones. I don't know. Five. Don't you get them on all your PD patients every three months? Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah. But the only thing I was going to say is just that it's really important though to remember this piece about tracking the urine output. A lot of times we want to interpret the urine electrolytes that we get, you know, if they get sent from the ED, but you really have to take into account this part of the urine output, which I thought was a really nice reminder. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. There's table 13-1, which was the clinical application of urine chemistries, kind of gives uh, different uses for the different electrolytes. For sodium, he says, assessment of volume status, diagnosis of hyponatremia and acute renal failure, dietary compliance in patients with hypertension, evaluation of calcium and uric acid excretion in stone formers. And then you also need the urine sodium for the urine anion gap, which he kind of mentions only for chloride for some reason, but you need the sodium and the potassium also. For chloride excretion, he has similar to that for sodium, Diagnosis of metabolic alkalosis, certainly, and the urine anion gap. Uh, for potassium excretion, he has the diagnosis of hypokalemia. But if you're going to do like uh, electrolyte-free water clearance, you'll need for hyponatremia or hypernatremia, you'll need the urine potassium for that. And you'll also need the urine potassium for the urine anion gap. Then for osmolality, he says the diagnosis of hyponatremia, hypernatremia, and the weirdest typo and gravity acute renal failure. I don't know if that's zero gravity acute renal failure. Is that astronaut AKI? I don't, I don't know what we're talking about there. <laughs> He's, uh, that's where the, he left off specific gravity. It's kind of because it's osmolality or specific gravity. So oh, it's, uh, maybe it was but, but like, I saw the same thing. It was very funny when I read it. Maybe it's non-oliguric or something. Sodium excretion to assess volume status. I really have to object with the terminology there because you don't assess somebody's volume status by their urine sodium. You assess their volume status clinically, and then you see how the urine sodium may or may, or may not fit into that. But you can't tell me. I can give you any urine sodium, make a case for any any volume. I know that's not what he means. I mean, but it just should be you know useful in the assessment or along with physical exam. But you don't. That's the biggest mistake the house staff make is they say they see a low urine sodium and they they just assume that the patient is total body uh, sodium depleted. Melanie last time said, if you give me any set of labs, I can tell you a story that would that would make sense. But if you give me a story, I cannot tell you what the labs will look like. And that's because the labs are nonspecific. Is that the point of that? bit? Because it's so difficult to predict what actually happens, I think. You know, you know, you're listening to a story on rounds and that and you hear, you know, oh, he came in, he was vomiting and he took, you know, ibuprofen. And, and so in your mind, you're thinking vomiting, it's going to be a metabolic alkalosis. And that, and he took ibuprofen and you're thinking it's going to be renal failure. And then, you know, and then maybe his labs are normal. You know, you, you just don't know. You're thinking all these exciting things, but it may not match. That's a good one. I think it's really important to remember that, you know, any of these, the urine electrolytes are fun to think about and, and it helps us think about the physiology of or pathophysiology that's occurring, but none of them are very, very high sensitivity and specificity. They're just tools that we use and we enjoy that because we like thinking about physiology, but mostly you're going to get it from the history and the physical. And then these will 
reinforce what you thought, or if they are not what you thought, then you may, may maybe there's an additional issue. And thinking of these as the end all and be all, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, I think that's well. I think that's well stated. That said, let's go in and discuss them. <laughs> Burton Rose and Burton Rose d- does lay down some absolutes. So in the sodium excretion, he says the kidney varies sodium to maintain the effective circulating volume, and that the urine sodium is affected by the renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system, and atrial nitratic peptide. Maybe he kind of softens that. Not so sure how about that is. And then he just, I think, pretty much lays it out. He says sodium concentration can be used to determine volume status. I think is the, yeah, that's uh, yeah. the urine sodium concentration can be used as an estimate of the patient's volume status, I guess, is the line that he uses. That's what he says. I feel like I like the idea of kidney perceived volume status better than like the patient's actual volume status, right? Like that's the idea of effective circulating volume that he talks about is like, What's the kidney seeing and what's it reacting to? And that's kind of what the urine electrolyte here is telling us. Yeah. The line that he draws in the sand here is the urine sodium less than 20 is a kidney perceiving volume depletion. We, we okay with that, Josh? <laughs> I like that. Okay. But I'm, I'm not the editor here, so. Well, that's, you but don't that, want people giving, you know, yeah, that's, I mean, that's... heart failure. You don't want people going around giving right. crystal. Heart I mean, failure, it's... cirrhosis, right? Like the things that lead to low urine sodium in the presence of volume overload, like all those things are kidney-perceived hypovolemia, even though they're hypervolemic as you look at the person like Roger had talked but about. But if, if I'm estimating the patients that I see, if, if a resident were listening to this podcast, if I'm estimating the patients I see, half of them have low urine sodium from volume overload and would not benefit. So it's like, it's not like it's a tweak thing, like, oh, in this rare scenario, this is like a lot of the time, that's not a great estimate of so, yeah. I think Roger's point is extremely important a lot of the time. And I think you're falling short, and I would I would argue that it's actually maybe even 75%, 80% yeah. of the time, not 50% of the time. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot. Because usually we don't get called if it's just the patient's been vomiting, right? They just give them some saline and don't ever call us. You should work at my hospital. <laughs> <laughs> People don't throw up in Milwaukee. We have, you know. <laughs> you know re- remember, the urine sodium is going to reflect your steady state. So you have to be careful with this statement. I mean, remember our Yanam... Yanomami Indians. Yanomami Indians. Yeah. I still don't get it right. But the tribe in, 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 in the Amazon who have, you know, one milliequivalent a day and they're in steady state, they're not hypotensive. They're not volume depleted. They just don't need any sodium. So they don't put out any sodium. So I think if we, again, I'm arguing maybe a little bit semantics, but I, it's just a little misleading. And, and, and what's really important is what it starts with is that, you know, when you're in steady state, you put out what you take in. And, and to look at, to, to determine a, something on a, a value alone, it's really not, uh, there's not enough information there to, to do that. You really have to look at the value and put it in the context of the patient. He then goes and he talks about, it's especially helpful in determining the etiology of hyponatremia. And, and I think everybody would agree here that this is one of the fundamental pieces of data that I get when I face a patient with hyponatremia. And again, the history is super important, but I love backing that up with that urine sodium. And he you know, calls out, it's great for separating out SIADH and volume depletion. And interesting, he uses the line in the sand here of 40 milliequivalents per liter, which is not what I typically see. But I will tell you that that the data backs him up, that if you draw, usually the line that you read in most textbooks and in most algorithms is 20 milliequivalents per liter. And there are a million patients that are vol- that are saline responsive, that have urine sodiums greater than 20 but not many 
that have urine sodiums greater than 40. I think it re- he's right about this line, though it's not what you typically see. You know, it's funny, Joel, when you said how much a fan you are of the sodium for that clinical scenario, I always have fun with the with the fellows. I say, if you have, if you can have one thing, one test in the, your hyponatremic patient, what is it? Well, no, serum osmolar, no, urine osmolar, no, it's urine sodium because it backs up my physical exam. And so I totally agree with you. I think it's really, really useful in that clinical scenario. You know, we, we, we've been talking earlier about how we ha- we cannot look at urine values the way we look at plasma values. Plasma values have a normal range, and that's kind of the, the struggle of trainees because they are used to the normal range, and they expect a normal range for urine. And when we discuss cases, we have to think, before you look at the urine sodium, you know, what would you expect, or, or the urine chemistry in general? It's almost like you have to formulate a hypothesis, see what you can expect in the urine, and then look at the urine results. And that applies in most cases of AKI, for instance, right? But in hyponatremia... But that's a great way just to use the lab, the clinical lab in general, is say, before you order any tests, what do you, what do you think you're going to get? What, what are you anticipating the result to be, right? Isn't that, isn't that kind of... Ab- absolutely. But there are situations where a patient comes for a pneumonia all of a sudden, and you get an, a, a blood a part of a, a chemistry panel some number that you just didn't expect. And now you're faced yeah. with a result that you need to troubleshoot, correct? And then you have to troubleshoot and think about what to order next. But I'm getting, I want to get back to the urine sodium because I think that in the urine sodium in hyponatremia is so important that I don't mind throwing a urine sodium when you see a hyponatremia because often the clinical presentations are so gray that it's not very clear. Oh, this patient has a clear SIDH. Oh, this guy is clear beer potomania. Oh, this is clear liver failure. Sometimes there's a mixture of all three components when the patient arrives to the emergency department, right? And you're like, geez, okay, let's see, let's think. Give me your sodium. And, and things all of a sudden start to be a little bit clearer. But in, outside of that situation, I push the urine chemistry way down in the thinking process, typically. One question that comes to my mind is classically we have said that an exclusionary criteria for not using, let's say, like FINA or even the urine sodium is when some a patient is not oliguric. And so with this, we're not talking about an essay, you know, with hyponatremia, we're just take the urine sodium at face value and we're not really talking about the urine output. And so that is where I get a little bit confused. Like why here, like a low urine sodium like is very indicative, but like if we're talking about a FINA, unless they're not, unless they're oliguric, we're like, oh, we can't really use it. Well, we're going we're gonna to get an opportunity to put the FINA under the knife. And I think we have some expertise among our cohort here on, the, on, on that topic. Uh, Letty, how do, you, how do you teach your medical students about urine sodium and hyponatremia? Very much in the context of of what we're talking about, that whenever we see hyponatremia, it's a problem of water excess and water balance in the body is mediated through ADH. So we just have to figure out why ADH is is present. We just have to do that, right? So simple. But a lot of it hinges on the the volume status exam, which sometimes is straightforward, sometimes not so much, but the urine sodium is helpful because it can indicate RAS activity, right? That aldosterone should be activated in a patient who's hypovolemic. So exactly like this. So I'll save, I guess, my comments about the FINA, but 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 this is how we how I how I bring it up. I, said, I think that's so important is that you lean back into why is the urine sodium low? Because we've activated the angiotensin and aldosterone system, and that, that they're actively reabsorbing sodium, and that th- there's a reason why that urine sodium yeah. is low. And if there's a reason why that urine sodium is low, then it can't be an appropriate ADH. That's that's the key there. I mean, right. It has to be uh, water reabsorption without sodium reabsorption. You know, 
non-osmotic, non-volume mediated. There's only one caveat about that low urine sodium that I've seen people make mistakes. At least, you know, uh, some of the, even my fellows make mistakes when they look at a urine sodium. It really only applies if the urine is concentrated because if you've got someone who's diluting their urine, they're actually hyponatremic and drinking a lot of water, their urine sodium is going to be low. And that doesn't mean that they're, that they have a sodium avid state. That just means they have a dilute urine. So you have, you know, I've seen them make that mistake and think that it's a sodium responsive or a effective circulating volume, whatever you want to say. So it really only applies if the urine's concentrated. And we're going to get an opportunity to talk about hyponatremia deeply, but the other area where this can be a pitfall is in an SIADH patient who's been made NPO for whatever procedure they're going to get. Since they're in sodium balance, sodium in equals sodium out. And if there's no sodium coming in, they're going to have a low urine sodium, right? I mean, I have a patient like that right now. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And it throws everybody off. A million, everybody looks at that. Yeah. Nobody gets it. You're like, hey, wait a minute. This is, there's a reason why it's this way. Most of the time, they would have they got a couple of liters of saline in the ER before you get to see them. So they're all their urine sodiums are sky high. It's easy. It's, it, you don't run into the situation as much. But this also gets like sort of circles back to what Letty um, started with because patients who have the syndrome, syndrome of inappropriate diuresis, they actually they don't make a lot of urine. You know, you're not going to see leaders and leaders. And so just as you said, Letty, we're talking about not that much urine. And so, you know, in that context, you can interpret the urine sodium. But Roger, I put that low urine sodium on a quiz or a final every year. Every year. Okay. Uh, then he goes from hypotremia, he says, it's also useful in acute kidney injury. He says here, we're looking at a differential of pre-renal versus ATN, which I, I describe as my job. That's my job description. Uh, in addition to urine sodium and the FINA, he says you can look at the urine osmolality. Again, he uses a urine, a urine sodium of 40 milliequivalents per liter as this dividing line, which I, I love because I, I think it's a pretty cagey move. It's cagey because it's above 40 is ATN, below 20 is pre-renal, and 20 to 40 is you still have to figure it out. And most people still land in the 20 to 40, right? Excellent. So we'll, we'll come back to this when we get to FINA, but he does say that the urine sodium can also be used to estimate the day, dietary sodium intake. So he suggests measuring the 24-hour urine sodium during treatment of hypertension to assure dietary adherence. Does anybody do that? I do nope. sometimes, yeah. So talk, Amy, talk about how you use the urine sodium when you treat hypertension. Yeah, so if I've got a patient who's on like four or five medications and they're like, gosh, doc, like I'm taking them all, I'm doing everything and I'm doing low salt diet and I'm exercising and I'm doing all these great things and then they're still like overweight and, you know, I can smell like the McDonald's on their breath. I'm like, well, let's just get a urine sodium so that way I, I can know like how if there's more work that can be done. So I don't get it routinely. It's just kind of in a certain patient population that I might get it. I guess the question I have is, do you feel like you can't out-diurese some of these people by just adding more diuretic, like more loop diuretic to them if you feel like they're still eating too much salt? Or do you really, are, how much are you really pushing lifestyle change? Because I feel like I want to push lifestyle change, but I feel like it's the hardest thing that people do. Yeah, I think a lot of it too is like if I, the other reason I use is if I have a patient who says, oh, I'm doing a low salt diet. And then sometimes I check it. And I'm like, you are doing a low salt diet. Like you're doing a great job. Keep going with that. Like that's kind of nice encouragement for them to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. I think, I think you're exactly right. I, I think I, I could just increase the diuretic and have no issue with this. It doesn't necessarily change my therapy, but you know, I definitely 
prefer most of my patients to kind of take a more active role in their care. And so I want them to be invested and try to exercise and change their diet, not just for their hypertension, but for their own general well-being. And so I hate to just throw pills at people if if I feel like that they can try to do it with lifestyle. I was, I'm just curious, do you think you could get some of this information just by measuring a renin level that if they're really really reducing their sodium, should their renin be stepping upwards? I, I mean, I don't know. I'm just kind of throwing that out there just because of the inconvenience of getting a 24-hour collection. But that might be tricky, uh, Joel, if the patient is on an ACE or an ARP that may elevate your, your renin and mislead you uh, in that sense. Or, di- or, or diuretic. diuretic itself too. But see, I don't use any of those drugs. It is alpha methyl dopa, and we just keep going up on the dose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, this is what I was going to say because you know, I I, I to- definitely appreciate what he's saying here about you know that the use of diuretics should not interfere, which is I you know that's very reassuring. But what about ACEs and ARBs, spironolactone, like where you are really interfering with the rest system here, like? Wouldn't that impact? And I, I don't know that it's necessarily, I think that I feel less confident about interpreting the urine studies that when patients are on these drugs. Yeah, yeah, ACE and ARS will elevate your plasma renin activity for sure. Um, and that would interfere with that test. But uh, Amy, I used to I used to do that a lot too. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know, in my practice, I used to handle a lot of patients with resistant hypertension, exactly the patient that you described. And I would do it not so much for deciding on adding a diuretic, Josh. I was more for the same as Amy, you know, sit down with the patient and say, Mr. Smith, you, you said you're doing fault diet, but, you know, I look, if patient is bringing in 350 millimoles of sodium excretion in a 24-hour with only one gram of creatinine, you know that it's, if anything, might be an undercollection. So you have to, you know, you. I think you're doing great, but, you know, you could do better, you know, showing showing the information to the patient. But then, subsequently, I came across a study that, uh, and I'm, I apologize, I, I don't recall the, the, the author of the study, but looked at the relationship between sodium intake and how uh, good the 24-hour sodium was to kind of correlate. And, and it wasn't very favorable. And some authorities in the hypertension world starting to say that eh, it's not really the best test. But um, but again, I, I don't I don't want to make any strong statements in favor or against. But I, I used to do it, Amy. I think it was intended to just in, uh, push the, the dietary adherence for loss of diet. I, I guess one of the things is if, if you're going to make sodium restriction a big part of your aromatarium for treating hypertension and then decide never to measure it and never to assess it, I, I don't think you can be serious about it. Right? I, I think that if, if you are going to say that we're going to really work, that sodium reduction is an important part of your therapy, an attempt to measure it seems to make sense. Well, and I think as a, someone who's just starting to, Amy, like, you are saying, oh, you're going to measure it so you can help engage people and counsel them and help them, you know, reduce sodium in their diet. But I think for me, um, it would also be listening to you talk. I'm thinking, well, but then I'd be more comfortable trying to up titrate their diuretics, knowing I'm not missing something. Because for me, my concern is always, because I'm so new at this, I'm always concerned I'm missing something, you know? So if I see that they're, that, that they're, I've still got room to go up on a diuretic, then I feel more comfortable just doing that as opposed to using that visit to look for other things that I'm missing. And so that's always my fear. Yeah. This confirmation that they're not sticking to a diet is also valuable to me, just knowing I'm not like shortchanging them by not finding something else. Yeah. 
He goes into an important aspect about that the 24-hour urine for sodium is going to be accurate even in patients on a diuretic. And I thought this is a really important lesson is that, you know, initially when you put people on diuretic, they'll have increased urinary sodium, but within a couple of weeks, they'll be at a new steady state and di- and sodium in will again equal sodium out. And then he kind of talks about the mechanism. We've talked about diuretic breaking, that if you put people on a loop diuretic, they will re- increase their absorption of sodium in the proximal tubule and the distal convoluted tubule. Or if you put them on a, uh, a drug that affects it at the DCT, or she made the yeah the distal convoluted tubule, uh, they'll get more. Uh, they'll get increases in angiotensin two, and that'll increase proximal sodium reabsorption. But I think that that idea that diuretics do keep people in a sodium balance is an important thing. And I think it's also important because that's not the case for a spot sodium, where in the few hours after you give the patient a dose of furosemide, their urine sodium is going to be elevated and you and you could be fooled by a spot sodium, less so with a 24-hour. Yeah, but I'm with you, Letty. Like, I still like take the urine studies when they're on a diuretic, their urine sodium when they're on a diuretic with like a grain of salt. I know he's saying that like not to worry about it, but- I still do. <laughs> I hope you realize how, what a bad pun that was. <laughs> no. <laughs> you take it with a grain of salt. Oh, I got it. <laughs> that was a really... <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. But wouldn't we also interfere with the studies, with even with like ACE or ARBs, because we're interfering with the whole RAS system? At least inpatient, though. I'm, I don't ever see patients still on those hosp- those drugs in the hospital. Usually if they're calling me, they've already stopped them for 24 hours. So. And I don't know, but do you know the one, the last thing I was going to say is not just many times when you talk to patients about um, dietary sodium, and there's I know that there's also conflicting data of like just how much you can actually lower blood pressure with that. A lot of the times, you know, given the, the food access problems here, like the problem is already the, f- the sodium in the food. So many times it's not that they can't or, or that or that they don't know or they don't want to. It's that they actually can't. So uh, because every, everything that we buy is just like packed with sodium. So I wanted to circle back to your first question about ACE and ARBs and urinary sodium. I think that was your question. So that comes up, that question comes up all the time for my students. So, you know, one of the things that we teach in and anybody interrupt me if you're thinking about this differently. So one of the things that we teach is that in the setting of volume depletion, when renin is on or or the kidney senses or perceives low perfusion, choose your verb. In that setting, renin is elaborated and we get angiotensin 2 and of course aldo. We try and teach that angiotensin 2 stimulates reabsorption of sodium throughout the nephron and especially in the proximal tubule. So then my students often ask, well, if angiotensin II stimulates sodium reabsorption, would an ACE inhibitor block sodium reabsorption and therefore be a diuretic? And the way that I answer that is that normally the proximal tubule reabsorbs a big chunk of the sodium, right? Over 65, 75% of the sodium. And so when there's perceived volume depletion and angiotensin II is on, we go over that. So what ACE inhibitors would do would be block the additional sodium reabsorption above what's normal and therefore would not cause a big loss of sodium, a big saluresis. Well, but, but the question is, these studies must have been done, right? Does anybody know, has anybody looked at this data? Is like, does it increase urinary sodium? 
But I think it's I think it's a totally legit question. And I think you look at the physiology, it's not unreasonable to think it might. I will volunteer to look that up for a voice of God. Voice of God. Assignment <laughs> assignment given. Okay. I would say that every once in a while a patient tells me that she thinks that they, you know, that they think that ACE inhibitors make them urinate more. And I always secretly wonder and then say, oh, no, it doesn't do that. But, you know, every once in a while I get a patient who says that. My, my guess is that the sodium load is decreased by the slight decreases in GFR. And I think that neutralizes it. That's my guess. But I'd be, I'm, I'd be curious to look at what the data shows. I think I might like your explanation better. I like that. So Joel is right, this has been studied. In 1986, the Journal of Hypertension published a small study of eight healthy volunteers in a double-blind crossover study. The volunteers received either high or low-salt diets, and then they received either placebo or enalapril. The study found that by inulin clearance, enalapril did not change GFR in either diet. A small but significant increase in urine volume did occur after administration of enalapril in both low- and high-salt diets. That might be what Melanie's patients are noting, but when you look at the raw data, the biggest increase in urine volume compared to placebo was 100 milliliters difference in the first hour. It seems hard to believe that anyone would notice that small of a difference in urine output, but maybe. Furthermore, a significant natriuretic response occurred within two hours and persisted up to 12 hours after enalapril administration. This effect was around 150% increase in FENA in the low-sodium group within six hours. The study noted that the cumulative increase in sodium excretion remained significant at 24 hours after enalapril administration. In the high-sodium group, this was around 20% increase in total urinary sodium excretion, compared to 140% increase in the low-sodium group when compared to the effect of placebo or just the diet alone. So basically, like you would expect, the natriuretic response to ACE inhibition is more pronounced in salt-depleted patients in whom the RAS angiotensin system is activated than in salt-repleted patients. So is an ACE inhibitor a diuretic? I think you can make a strong argument that it is, especially in patients with conditions of high RAS activation, like heart failure. Okay. The last use of sodium is in stone disease. He says that urine uric acid and urine calcium can cause kidney stones, and their handling is dependent on sodium. And that, you know, so we advise patients with kidney stones, regardless of the, really regardless of the etiology, to go on a low sodium diet. Um, and then he points out that this low sodium diet can actually mask elevated excretion of these stone forming metabolites. So if you have hypercalciuria, if you're on an uh, adequately low sodium diet, you may not pick that up on a 24 hour urine collection. And he says that as long as their urine sodium is greater than 75 millivolts a day, that should be enough to avoid this pitfall. It's really not a pitfall because if they're on a low sodium diet, then that's success. It's not, it's, it's less of a pitfall and more of a success, or at least masking the diagnosis. It, is the it's interesting, but yeah, but that's, that's your goal. So that's I think that's yeah, I've never, thing. I've never seen 24 urine sodium this way before. I, I really like this paragraph because when I obtain urine sodium on a stone profile is to see if I, if I have to advise the patient to restrict sodium intake, not to verify if my assessment of hypercalciuria or hyperecosuria is going to be off. That's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, and then he has a little paragraph on the pitfalls of this collection. He says, watch out for bilateral renal artery stenosis because they'll have low urinary sodiums despite their volume status. Uh, same thing with acute GN, which is any primary injury to the kidney will cause 
uh, the kidney to be very sodium avid and lower the urine sodium. He talks about high urine sodium with diuretics, aldo deficiency in advanced CKD as the patient try, as the kidneys try to maintain homeostasis at a very low GFR. They'll have to get rid of a larger fraction of the sodium that's filtered. Um, and then he says that uh, altered water handling can also affect the urine sodium concentration. He gives an example of someone who has diabetes insipidus with 10 liters of urine and a urine sodium excretion of 100 milliequivalents per day, and that would result in a urine sodium concentration of 10 milliequivalents per liter, which would look like somebody was volume depleted. But of course, this patient is getting rid of their daily solute load or daily sodium load and is in sodium balance. And then also important, a lot of water resorption can mask volume deficiency by jacking up the urine sodium. So similar to the example we gave before about the urine potassium, if the patient is volume depleted and is as only making 500 cc's of urine, they can, um, uh, they can have an elevated urine sodium concentration that still represents represents volume deficiency. And he says the way to avoid that problem is to use the fractional excretion of sodium, which is the next section. Any other thoughts on the pitfalls? The other thing I would lump in with selective renal glomerular ischemia, like another etiology here is like CNI use. I feel like, I don't know if folks look for urine sodiums in folks on tacrolimus or cyclosporin, but I feel like that does exactly the same mm-hmm. stuff. And I probably see that more commonly than right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great one. Great run. Okay. And then the next section is on the FINA. He says that uh, less than 1% is going to indicate someone who's volume depleted. Greater than 2 to 3% in the presence of uh, oliguria is going to indicate acute tubular necrosis. He says that the FINA will fail to be discriminatory between those two conditions of pre-renal and ATN if the patient has chronic effective volume depletion. And the examples he gives are heart failure, cirrhosis, and burns. He then adds on later with later, contrast, rhabdo, and pigment nephropathy. And uh, those were, I believe all of those patients were excluded from that initial assessment of FINA from like 1976 in JAMA. He's a little soft in his description of why patients with ATN and heart failure or ATN and cirrhosis or ATN and burns, where they actually have acute tumor necrosis is causing the AKI, but they're living in this chronic volume depleted state, will still have a low fractional excretion of sodium. And this is a case of a uh, the FINA being non-informative will give you the wrong answer, if you will. And he says it may be because tubular function will be preserved in those situations, which seems a bit absurd to me. I don't think that's the explanation. I have I have my own personal explanation. I was wondering if anybody else had some thoughts about why that's the case. I mean, the classic cause of the elevated phenol and ATN is that the tubules are damaged from the acute tubular necrosis. They're unable to reabsorb the sodium, and that's caused the elevated phenol. I don't think that's the case personally. What do you think it is? Okay, so here's what I here's what I think. <laughs> How do you yeah. feel about that? I, 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 this is what I think. This is what I think. I think that ATN is a patchy diagnosis, and there are some tub- there are some tubules that are failing to reabsorb the sodium, and others that are doing that are handling sodium fine. And the ones that are failing to reabsorb the sodium are going to undergo uh, uh, tubular glomerular feedback. And so those tubules that are unable to reabsorb the sodium are actually not going to contribute to the urine that we actually measure when we measure the feed. And that the tubules that are making urine, the ones that are not affected by the tubular necrosis, they're going to expose the underlying volume status of the patient, right? And in most cases of ATN, the patient's volume overloaded, and so they're going to have an elevated FINA. But in these cases, in the burn or the cirrhotic or the heart failure patient, the underlying situation that the kidneys experience is still going to be volume depleted, and so they'll have a low FINA in that situation. And so 
what I, I mean, I think that the FINA is just exposing just their underlying volume status of the patient in ATM. That's my explanation for why you get this wrong answer with heart failure and burns and cirrhosis plus ATM. Let me ask you this. Do, do any of you, and if so, in what way, remeasure urine electrolytes after you have made an assessment about, you know, after you've gone and you've evaluated the person, you've taken a history, and then you've decided, hey, I think this person needs crystalloid. Do you ever repeat and check whether you're progressing to normal normalize their urine chemistries? Is that something anybody does? I don't, but I know that Richard Stearns had an editorial recently. He was advocating for the daily urine lights. In addition to our da- daily basic metabolic, he's like, let's get some da- daily lights. Yeah. So it's not an unreasonable position. I do sometimes repeat the, my urinalysis. And part of that includes you know, specific gravity. So in essence, I guess I would say I am sometimes doing that, but not routinely to see if they've progressed, I guess. Yeah, I'll do that for hyponatremia, but I won't mm-hmm. do that for AKI. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do sometimes on hyponatremia, and obviously I repeat the sediments now because of JC's paper. But Anna, why don't, why don't you summarize what JC just, uh, had in his paper? You got to put her on the spot. You can't. Make JC <laughs> yeah. You know what? That's a good point. I'm JC, afraid I'll misrepresent it. Basically, you get more information. I, JC, I know we covered this paper in FJC. I know you won. What was it? What was the award you won for? What was the uh, you got, most, engaged, most engaged scientist of the year? Science. Engaged scientist. Right. Engaged scientist of the year. With Vipin, is that his name? That's Vipin? correct. Vipin, yes, and- Vipin Varghese. Yeah, no, sure. I'll be very brief. This is a study that we uh, attempted to answer a simple question. Uh, we knew that it was common clinical practice for a certain uh, group of nephrologists to repeat the urine sediment microscopy uh, in cases where, on a first instance, wasn't clear or the findings were not impressive. And the question was: Is it really worthwhile? Are you likely to find you a new diagnosis? Uh, if you repeat the urine sediment. So we uh, systematically conducted urine sediment microscopy day one, and then subsequently a second uh, 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 microscopy at 48 hours, and then third one at beyond 72 hours, and to determine how often you're likely to identify findings in urine sediment that were missed on the initial assessment. The bottom line was around 20 to 24% of the times that a first urine microscopy was relatively bland on a second examination or even a third examination, you found evidence of a a coarse granular cast indicative of acute tubular injury. So in a way, it kind of validated that it was reasonable to do it. Now, the, the particular group of patients where this was found were those in which the creatinine was still rising, which makes sense. So if you have a, assess a patient and they look at the urine and you don't have an answer and the creatinine keeps rising two, three days later, maybe re-looking at a urine may find an answer you didn't find on the first day. But if patient is stable or getting better, why would you look at a urine again? So uh, that was a nice piece of information we thought that we had on the paper as well. Um, but, but yeah, your question, Anna, would you repeat? I, I think, uh, Josh, uh, what I, I, I do as Josh, if you have a hyponatremia, uh, and I think uh, Joel mentioned earlier, sometimes patient arrives with volume depletion on top of SIDH and the urinary sodium may fool you. So if you have a strong clinical suspicion, 
Sometimes I repeat the urine sodium two, three days uh, consecutively to, until, you know, reveals the diagnosis. But in AKI, no, I, I don't routinely do that either. Yeah, that's, that's the situation where I find myself doing it too in hyponatremia patients where I'm like, it's not, if, if it's volume depletion and they say, oh, I haven't eaten anything and I've had vomiting and diarrhea and for days and days, but sometimes you ask and they're like, well, maybe, you know. Yeah, I feel a little dizzy when I stand up sometimes, maybe. And yeah, I didn't eat lunch yesterday, but you are not. You don't have a great picture and their blood pressures are kind of like in the, you know, 120s and you don't know, like maybe. So I just, I make a decision and I say, yeah, you could try some crystalline, but then it's, you know, a little improved, maybe not that much the next day. So I, I, I find myself rechecking them. I don't know if there's really any data for it or if anybody else does that. I think the answer is in you check them the next day. If it hasn't done anything, right. you have your answer. Yeah. But I, I mean, I think the real quite, I mean, the, the proxy, what you're really trying to get at is, is this saline responsive AKA or not? Right. And the next day you have your answer, right? They either got better or they didn't, right? Like, I just, I think that if, if the next day the FINA is low, but they didn't get better with saline, I'm not sure if that helps me clinically. I'm not, I, you know. Saline response of hyponatremia is what I'm I'm getting at. Usually AKI, yeah. I mean, oh, I, I thinking, expect I thought it to you were going, with volume. I, I thought you were going with AKI. I apologize. Yeah, in hyponatremia, I'm I'm all for more lights because yeah. you repeat it um, often, often. I do too, but again, I don't know if that's just because I'm new and I I'm just wanting to see validation that I'm on the right path. You know, um, no, I totally repeat them. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Agreed. Agree, because because just like JC said, you can get layered diseases and try to yeah. separate those out. It can be can be can be spicy. Um, so the fina the fina the fractional excretion of sodium. It's a it's a what it represents is the fraction of the filtered sodium that is actually excreted, and it's a pretty cool calculation, right? Because how you know how do you calculate uh, the amount of excreted sodium? That's simply you take your urine volume times your urine concentration. Of sodium, boom, that's your, your that's the sodium excreted. But how do you figure out the amount of sodium that is filtered? Well, in that case, you take an estimate of the GFR and you multiply it by the sodium concentration in the plasma. And GFR times sodium concentration is going to equal filtered sodium. And that what is so cool about that is that equation for GFR, which is actually not GFR, but it is actually uh, creatinine clearance is um, the creatinine clearance calculation is urine creatinine times urine volume divided by plasma creatinine. And so what we get is a fraction with, in the numerator, you have urine volume because we're talking about the urine sodium concentration times the urine volume. So you have urine volume there. And in the denominator, you also have urine volume as part of your creatinine clearance formula. And it allows those urine volumes to cancel out and allows you to do the calculation on a spot sample, which is why the FINA became incredibly popular is that it did not require a time collection. And it's just algebra. So that's what's so cool about it. I uh, often have the fellows derive it. Sodium excreted, you know, divided by sodium filtered. And they can, it, you, you said the easy one is the sodium excreted, but, you know, they have trouble with that because they, they said, what's the, they don't get this. It's a year in sodium times a year in volume. It's actually the year in flow rate. V is a little bit confusing to people. Because it's not volume, it's flow rate, but uh, it still cancels out. But they have the hardest time. But it's a fun thing to make to force them to do that, and then all of a sudden the V's, the flow rates cancel out, and you end up with a spot. It's a pretty cool thing. Like both that. of them are over a period of time. That's why it's a rate. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Wait, we can't go past this without you telling everyone your cheat, Joel. Oh yeah. 
the yeah, headache. Yeah, the important. Okay, the important cheat. So, so that's the that's the the full formula. But what people actually they actually do is urine sodium times plasma creatinine divided by plasma sodium divided by urine creatinine. And to memorize this formula, what you want to do is you want to look at the um, the numbers and you, and the FINA number is a very small number, right? It's one or two percent, so it's going to be point oh one or point oh oh nine or something like that. And so to get a very small number, you want to take the small numbers and put them on the top. And so urine sodium is a small number. Serum creatinine is a small number. Those both go in the numerator. And you want to put the big numbers in the denominator. And so serum sodium is a big number that goes in the denominator. And urine creatinine is a big number that goes in the denominator. And if you just put small, small over big, big, then the, uh, the FINA formula resolves itself. <laughs> I love oh, that's that. Great. <laughs> that's great. Ex- that is the kind of thing I'm here for. <laughs> I love little, yeah. little, big, big. Little, little, big, big. I love it. There are times when the urine sodium yes. are higher This is what I was going to say. I'm like, yeah, yeah, almost no, never. Yes, yes. When you desail yeah, it. bad never. It is unusual, but it does... Over 150 is pretty uncommon. And, and, and to be fair, you're not doing this. this you're doing the fractional excretion sodium for AKI and not for, mm-hmm. not for hypoxemia. Um, I just, uh, you know, I have so much to say about FENEB. We're here for you, JC. We're here for you, please. But no, but <laughs> I'm going to share, I'm going to share my journey, my personal journey with FENEB because you have to understand how much I love FENEB early on in my career, you know. I read this uh, Bob Schreier paper. Uh, your paper you mentioned, uh, Joel, it is indeed a JAMA paper by this guy, Espinel, was the first publication with, I don't know, 17, 18 patients. And then I think the same year at uh, Annals of Internal Medicine, the group from Denver, from Colorado, Bob Schreier, published uh, the paper with about 85 patients with perennial sotemia or ATN, which really was the paper that, gain much more popularity than the small paper by Spinel, but Spinel was the first one, as you uh, and Schreier and Schreier references yeah. Spinel. Like he's not he's not grabbing he's not grabbing his glory. Like he says, this is something that I like, and I'm, we're going to test it more rigorously. Correct, yeah. and he did. He went on and tested it more rigorously, and indeed, it worked very nicely. I think twenty-seven or twenty-eight patients with perennial zotemia out of thirty had phenas less than one percent and equal proportion for patients with ATN. So that was. It became the, this um, go-to test, and in, in, in nephrology, we, we like this test because it makes sense. It's a physiological test, so it helps us connect physiology with disease. So it's really, we grabbed it and we took it, right? And then I started, uh, you know, through a fellowship, and, and, and early on in my career, you start seeing patients, and you start saying, okay, this patient is in complete septic shock, has 20 liters on board. Clearly, ATN and Afina is like nothing, less important than one. It's like, okay, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Like you, you pointed out earlier, this could be uh, this tubular feedback uh, explanation or, or really reading what the volume of the patient is. But in terms of practicality, you're not going to give fluids to that patient. You know, the patient is in complete septic shock and volume overload. Okay. And then you start seeing patients with chronic kidney disease that develop AKI and chronic kidney disease. And you go back to the Miller-Schreier paper, like, wait a second, that was an exclusion criteria, right? And even the SPNL papers. So those patients were not included in those studies. So, okay, 
how is that going to affect? You can think in multiple ways how chronic kidney disease could affect those values. So, uh, so that's when the whole question in the test be, became personally, and I still think that if your fractional excretion of sodium is elevated, it's a very useful piece of information, typical in AKI, because it's, if you're suspecting ATA versus perenal, and if your fractional excretion of sodium is very high, of course, not on diuretics, you have pretty strong argument that is indeed uh, not a perennial state. And that is particularly applic- uh, important in cirrhosis and heart failure, as we may have discussed in previous episodes. But then, this is the, it, it was this left population of patients that have ischemic ATM, but the phenol is low, so wh- why does that happen? And that was what pushed us more recently to go on in this study that we just published, the Kidney 360, where we looked at patients that had AKI and they had a clinical diagnosis of ATN, but the fractional excretion of sodium was low. And we found that present in about a third of the patients, a little bit more, actually almost 40% of patients that had clinical diagnosis of ATN, in some cases biopsy diagnosis of ATN, Yet the FINA was less than one percent, and uh, we went on and tried to elaborate. But I'm going to stop here. Let you guys take it from here in terms of what could be the explanation. Because uh, Roger and I were talking a little bit about this, and I like his what his uh, he mentioned in terms of what is really the um, cause. I want to hear. I, wanna, I, I already gave my screen. I, I already gave my screen. Here's my take on this, and that uh, is that. The whole basis for the why the GFR goes down in, in ATN, I go back to that article we've probably already mentioned 10 times, the acute renal success story, American Journal of Medicine, 1980, I think. And the unexplained logic or whatever of, of, of acute renal success of the low GFR in, in, in renal failure. And it says that, you know, if your tubes are damaged, we better, we better shut down our GFR or we will become volume depleted in no time because even if your fractional excretion of sodium, you could still reabsorb 95% of your sodium, but if you're filtering 140 liters a day, uh, you're going to be in bad shape. So that's a, that's a, a basic tenet that I believe about ATN uh, that's going on. So if I see a low urine sodium, that tells me that the tubules are pretty healthy. And if they're pretty healthy, why would the GFR shut down? I'm going to backpedal a little bit because I don't like the test, quite frankly, but uh, clinically, but because it, you know, we'll get into that as well. But so... What, what JC, you know, is talking about is he's, he, in his mind, if somebody has granular casts, that wins, you know, if, if they've got granular casts, they have, they have acute tubular disease, acute tubular damage. I don't think there's any question if somebody has granular casts that they don't have acute tubular damage, but does that mean that their renal failure is driven by that process? And so if I saw a granular cast and I see, let's just give it a really low urine sodium so I can or fractional excretion of sodium that's really, really low, 0.2% or something. To me, you know, where's the physiology? Why would the kidney shut down if it's that healthy, if it can reabsorb sodium that well? So to me, there's, yes, there's tubular damage, but the but what's driving the what's driving it is still pre-renal force. That doesn't mean that I can fix it. Generally, we can't fix it. Generally, these are not volume-responsive pre-renal states. Clinically, I don't think it really matters in the end. I mean, the only thing it matters for is, the, is you don't want to miss volume-responsive AKI. And quite frankly, by the time I ever get consulted on a patient, they've already gotten two liters, two or three liters of, of crystalloid anyway. So it rarely makes a difference. But, you know, it kind of... Yeah, but uh, it, it Roger, kind of, you you've, have to make a decision. What's you've seen... Important? 
granular casts. But I, I would sodium. I think the kidney's smart. I think I believe the kidney. But I would I say that it's they always haven't gotten the two liters. That sometimes what's happened is that the first thing that happened wasn't the bump in the creatinine. The first thing that happened was the decrease in the urine output and the surgical intern. Not to pick on surgical interns, it could be an in, a, a, a medicine intern, but the person got the call not for an increased creatinine, but they got a call for oliguria. And what was the response to oliguria? Oh, give them some furosemide. And so sometimes, and then the next morning the creatinine goes up, and then you come in there and you're like, oh, well, maybe we should give it a, a trial of volume, right? Yeah, that, that's fine. But I, and and but generally they've gotten volume. I mean, all I mean is that all I meant is that if I if I see a low urine sodium, they almost always had fluid anyway. And it's and if I'm seeing it, it's meaning it tells me they're not getting better. Because that's why they're that's why they're consulting us. So, but I you know it, it all depends. It's like a religion, you know. I mean, JC's a he's a <laughs> urine guy. I mean, the guy he's amazing microscopist, and his pictures are amazing. And he sees this stuff, you know, ten times a day that I might see once a year. And and he believes in that. I I I kind of have to believe in the physiology, but I don't think it really matters. I I just wanted to say that like it wouldn't. When we're thinking about it, and it's so true, I agree with you, Roger, that most of the time, by the time we get consultative patients have gotten fluids, but I think the whole point of what we're trying to do through this podcast is teach like how we should be thinking, and rather than just universally give fluids, that we should be look not necessarily hinging everything on these numbers, but just look at the patient. Like how many times like will will we get consulted on someone that we say, well, the urine sodium is still low, so I'm just going to keep giving fluids. Meanwhile, there's pulmonary edema and pedal edema and all the, these things. And so I think the whole point of what we're trying to say here is not what we usually see, but what can we teach in from what we know that... Um, you know, how to use these numbers, which is, you know, it's a piece of information, but at the end of the day, you have to bring it back to what the patient looks like. Yeah. And uh, uh, Roger, uh, you know, I, I love this concept of dissociating the presence of tular injury versus what's really the cause of AKI. And I think it's a solid point. And, and perhaps one of the best examples, one of the best examples that supports what you just uh, stated is in this recent uh, study in, in marathon runners that Shirapari and his group published, where these athletes went on to run a marathon and they collected urine sediment and they had all these granular casts, yet the kidney function was completely normal. So that's an example that supports what you uh, stated, Roger, that the tubular injury may not be the driver. Now, for that reason, we looked at different abundances of casts in these cases. In, 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 even in cases where the feed was completely occupied by this uh, modular and granular cast, the phenol was low. The counter argument is, I would say, what if the tubular injury is a driver in that case and the volume depleted state is not? Because you can be volume depleted and your GFR could still be normal as well, right? That the same argument could be in both directions. But ultimately, is what Lady said, I think the stimulus for this was watching many patients getting fluids as a reflex every time a pheno was low and it was all pheno's low perineal fluids 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 and and that was kind of what started this this whole uh project to to look for other answers well, let me let me take a poll i mean how many people love the pheno in aki how many people like the pheno in aki by the way no one's like no it. one's uh okay <laughs> nobody oh no no because you can't no, see our faces I, I, no I, I i would say that I consider it part of my global assessment of the patient that I don't do that I don't make my call on one piece of data, but the phena is one of the pieces of data I collect. 
Do you love it? I don't love. There's not. I don't. I, 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 the only thing I. You love the urine sodium. You love the urine sodium hypoatremia. No, the fem- I like it. Okay, I, I like it. We're in a committed relationship. I, I like it if it lines up with the other stuff that I'm already God, thinking. Josh, that's totally right. But what can you gather more from the fena that you can't get from the urine? Well, sodium? no, but you. But we all know the problem. We all know that that, that the fena avoids some of the pitfalls of the urine sodium that we want to avoid. We, it avoids the problem of the the. Uh, concentration of the urine, right? It, it, it avoids that. It avoid, it neutralizes the effect of urine volume. And that's important, right? Just it removes one sort of conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, it, it's a little bit cleaner. Yeah, but so what was it, Paul Roger? <laughs> well, I just, I, some people like it. I Do you all use yes. it? Yes. I, I think I probably calculated in a good chunk of AKI consoles, and I only write it in the assessment and plan if it yeah. lines up with whatever. Well, that's the point, Josh. That's exactly what I find, that, that Personally, I think it's a very limited parameter, very very limited measurement. And if and and I find if if I like what it, I see, I might believe it. If I don't like what I see, I, I don't believe it. Which means I don't. It's not a good test for me. And maybe I'm wrong, but I'm on I'm, I'm on Josh's side with this one. I mean, what are you going to do? The urine sodium is low, and the the is low. The patient's gotten volume. I mean, you gonna are you gonna just find that they have paternal syndrome or that they have heart failure? And you didn't know it. I kind of doubt that. This is a way overrated test in my book. I know a lot of people that stopped getting them completely. But I, I mean, I think it it doesn't tell you what you didn't know. It, the point of it is is the opportunity to think about what the kidney should be doing and whether it's doing it or not. The thing is, if FINA works best in the people we need it least, right? So we don't measure it in those people because they come in hypotensive and they get fluids. That's the right thing to do. We're not going to spa- wait, everybody, let's get a FINA. Then we can decide, you know. So I think that's where the problem lies. And you're not going to make all your decisions about this. It's just one more piece of evidence that you may look at. Okay, guys, we are never going to get through this if we don't keep moving. So I'm going to push us forward unless somebody has the perfect FINA commentary. I just have one side FINA commentary. Where did this whole idea of if your FINA is 2%, that means it's obstructive come from? Because I literally have so many medical students and residents (laughs) writing that and I... Like, I don't know where it came from. It's not in the book. Like, where? Yeah, I'll tell you where it came from. First aid for the boards (laughs) and osmosis videos. Not made by nephrologists. That's where you can find it. It drives me bananas. I've never even heard of it before. Oh, yeah. It's everywhere. It's very annoying. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the things I work on stomping out. Sorry, what is it? Your FINA is too... 2% 2% or higher, that means it's obstructive. Have you oh, not yeah. learned anything about dealing with misinformation? We're not supposed to repeat the misinformation when we're trying to stomp out the misinformation. So <laughs> help me, okay? Don't ask questions about where did that come from? What did you... Just cut that part out. Yeah, I think that's wrong, Amy. I do. There is, a, there, there is actually on the first uh, Bob Schreier paper, he has a table of patients with obstructive uropathy and the mean FINA of those patients was 6%. I wonder it started in 1976, and it was never uh, uh, changed from there. But who orders a FINA in obstruction, please? Makes no sense. Yeah, that's yeah. right. If you're ordering a FINA in that situation, you are already lost. your <laughs> <laughs> patient. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay, well, we thank you. Thank you. So we are... So you're he welcome. does... Uh, simply. We- limitations of FINA, believe it or not, of all the talk, he does talk about the math of a normal person with a GFR of 125 
And then he uses an estimate of a sodium of 150 will filter 27,000 milliequivalents a day. So even if they eat 125 to 250 milliequivalents of sodium, their phena will be less than 1%, saying that this really, the, these numbers that we use really depend on having a decreased GFR, which is part of the reason that Schreier said, I'm only including patients that are oliguric. He wanted to make sure he was only dealing with AKI because these numbers do not apply if you're not in acute kidney injury because at high GFRs, everybody has a low phena. And then he gives a couple of alternatives to phena. He gives the two alternatives nobody uses and doesn't give the alternative that we all use. He talks about the fractional excretion of lithium, which is not affected by diuretics and it's 20% in healthy controls and less than 15% in pre-renal disease. I have never ordered a fractional excretion of lithium. Boy, that would really require commitment to the FINA concept if you'd order the fractional excretion of lithium. Does anybody, any fractional excretion of lithium advocates here in the in the crowd? How about the fractional excretion of uric acid where less than 12% is pre-renal? This is something that does come up in the evaluation of hyponatremia. There is some data on the fractional excretion of uric acid. Any F.E. uric acid lovers. Nope. And then he does not cover the fee urea, or as some of my hospitalists like to call it, the fee bun, which I think is a very cute name. I like the fee bun. <laughs> That's really cute. I've never heard of that. <laughs> Wait, I do the, I do the fee urea for um, proximal tubulopathy, though, just not for um, And how does it work for, for pre-renal? Fee uric acid? What do you do and why do you do it? So patients who have a proximal tubulopathy, luckily, you know, we don't see as much anymore now with the new formulation of tenofovir, but with the older one, patients with reduced kidney function would have surprisingly low uric acid and would have high uric acid in their urine. So you could calculate the fractional excretion of uric acid to show and like more evidence of proximal tubular I would damage. do the same thing with, like yeah, the with phosphorus. I would do the tubular reabsorption of phosphorus to get the same mm-hmm. type yeah, of so. information. So the reason I like that one is that it's not affected by vitamin D deficiency, right? Because you could have a low, you know, a high FIPO because of secondary hyperparathyroidism because of vitamin D deficiency, very prevalent in New England. And then you could see uh, high fractional excretion of uric acid. So a little cheap. He then goes on to chloride excretion. He says that the urine chloride and urine sodium usually move in parallel. However, as many as 30% of hypovolemic patients have more than a 15 milliequivalent per liter difference between the urine sodium and urine chloride. That splay between the urine sodium and the urine chloride is going to be due to the sodium excretion with another anion, either bicarbonate or carbenicillin, the example that he gives, or chloride excretion with another cation. And the example he gives there is going to be ammonium. And then he brings up the metabolic alkalosis issue in which the sodium will be excreted with bicarbonate. And then he reports that urine sodium can be over 100 in volume-depleted cases with metabolic alkalosis, which is phenomenal, absolutely amazing. And so that we, you know, in metabolic alkalosis, we're trained to look at the urine chloride instead of the urine sodium to assess status. Uh, and then in metabolic acidosis, especially with a normal anion gap, the urine chloride should rise to balance out the ammonium that is in the urine. Anybody have any thoughts on urine chloride before we move on? 
I feel like I'm falling out of love with Yarnana and Gap. Does that feel like a, another heretical thing to say? No, no that's, that's a very right hip opinion. We need to get yeah. okay. There was yeah. a C. Jason editorial was there about the pitfalls of the Yarnana and Gap. There's a C. Yeah. Jason editorial in 2021. And it's Jason um, by Dr. Uri Yeah. And there's a, a C. Jason article in, in, in 2018 where they try to correlate the urine anion gap with the actual urine ammonium concentration, and it's a super weak correlation. It was terrible. I mean, it was it was it was it was yeah. really bad. Yeah, yeah. It's really bad, and it, it's a much larger cohort of patients than the original urine anion gap was derived in. And those are like really nice studies that are done. And these folks who are like put in a metabolic lab, you can control what they eat and you control what they excrete and you can measure everything. And we just never get that kind of real world data. So I feel like the answer is we should be measuring urinary ammoniums if we want to talk about urinary ammonium. And even then we probably don't know what to do with that kind of information. I got in a disagreement in fellowship with some of my program leadership about this though, because I got dragged for a second saying something about a urine anion gap. And I'm like, look, I realize the pitfalls. However, it is still on board questions. No, it's true. Yeah, I have, I, I, I don't really hate urine anion gap. Uh, as you pointed out earlier, I think it's a great tool to teach and understand uh, renal tuber acidosis. It helps put things in perspective. What is the kidney, what should do in this scenario? So for that purpose alone, it's very useful. Um, and like you said, uh, Josh, I mean, you know, I know Dan Batier very well as uh, too. And in his editorial, he pointed out clearly that his cohort was patient without chronic kidney disease, whereas the paper by Joachim Ich, uh, the correlated values were out of the ASK trial. Very specifically with CKD. That's right. Very, that's right. That's that ASK trial. So you cannot really compare normal kidney function with CKD population. Now. Um, for that reason, uh, yeah, I do order urine ammonium every time I have an opportunity. It's a send-out test for us at auction. It takes about four or five days to come back. Unfortunately, it's not something that we get right away. But I haven't completely abandoned urine in Angap, particularly in patients that have completely preserved kidney function, and there's nothing else going on that could obscure the results, obviously. I actually agree. I mean, it, it may fool you. It may not be 100%, but it's a re- great way of teaching about ammonium and a negative anion gap is a positive cation gap. That's what you want in acidosis. You want a cation gap. You want to have a lot of ammonium. So I think it's useful, but yeah, I mean, I like teaching it, uh, but I still do, you know, now we're doing osmolar gaps. It's kind of replaced the urinary osmolar gap has somewhat replaced that in the, in the evaluation of, of distal RTA. We'll probably save that for another day. Yeah, but don't osmolar gaps also have limitations and you have to get like a urine glucose level, assuming that they have glucose yeah, but most people don't have glycosuria. Come on, if they have glucosuria, don't you have your diagnosis? Yeah, that's true. Isn't yeah. it a proximal RTA thing, glucosuria? <laughs> We're done. Come on. <laughs> no, they're no. two inhibitor. Yeah. Or a diabetic. Yeah. yeah, no, but I mean, no, we're talking, yeah, exactly though. Yeah. Most people don't have that. And then really yeah. it, it becomes very easy because the cations in the urine are sodium, potassium, and ammonium. So it becomes a real good surrogate, you know, the osmolar gap. We're going to get to RTA. We're going to have an entire chapter where we're going to talk about this, but I'm going to move, I'm going to move on uh, to potassium excretion. This was a surprisingly short bit. I, there was some stuff that I liked. He says it can go as low as 5 to 25 milliequivalents a day. It's going to be low in extra renal losses or renal losses due to diuretics after the diuretics have worn off. More than 25 milliequivalents a day indicate renal losses. 
And then this next part I thought was so, super important. And when I finally recognized this, it was like an aha moment for me. He says that urine potassium is not helpful in chronic hyperkalemia because it's always due to the kidney. That's always the cause of chronic hyperkalemia. It's always a kidney that's failed. Uh, and so there's no, there's no such thing as like extra renal causes of hyperkalemia, which is such an important, like, oh, I get that uh, moment. So I love, I love that. And again, I will step back a little bit because Melanie, I do think we will be posting this. There are probably exceptions to that line that it never is due to the, it's always due to the kidney. There's probably some exceptions. Rhabdo, hemolysis, I, you know. Well, rhabdo is not chronic. There you go. There you go. Okay. Dig toxicity, you know. But no, you're absolutely right. It's it's, yeah. it's the kidney. Unless it's a lab error. But but the, but the common scenario is that you have a patient with baseline CKD, and all of a sudden develops a hyperkalemia. It seems to come out of nowhere, right? It's not because somebody doubled an ACE inhibitor. I have had these consults in clinic a few times where a patient has CKD stage 3B, for example, and develops hyperkalemia. So in that case, uh, uh, Melanie, you, you may think a superimposed acute process like rhabdo on top of a CKD. And I do get urine potassium to kind of help me, probably not a great idea. But if there is a shift, urinary potassium excretion should be still elevated. But again, in CKD, that's impaired. So yeah, it becomes very difficult to interpret. Okay. And then he goes on to urine osmolality. And I think this is a, uh, this is a, a good analysis. I think it you know, says in hyponatremia, it should be less than 100. In hypernatremia, it should be greater than 600 to 800. And then he says that uh, urine osmolality that's less than plasma osmolality in the face of hypernatremia indicates renal water loss due to lack of or resistance to ADH. I love that. So, so often, because everyone loves algorithms, that they look at an algorithm for hypernatremia and they say, well, urinosm has to be, you know, above like 310 or something. I'm like, where are you getting this number from? Like, I don't, I don't really understand. And finally, like it dawned on me, I think they're just calculating because it's supposed to be in the setting of hypernatremia. And so like your serum osmins should be hypersmolar because your serum sodium should be what, like 150. So 150 times two is 300 at 10, and that's 310. And I think that's where they're getting that number from. But to me, I just, I want people to understand like, is the kidney, what Anna was saying, is it appropriate or inappropriate? Like, don't just memorize a number. Try to think about like, should the kidney be trying to hold on free water and is it able to? And you just really need to compare the urinosms and the serumosms. Don't worry about like remembering a number. So he also mentions, which I thought, which I've always kind of wondered is that obviously like your urine osms are kind of limited by maybe you won't be able to concentrate your urine well if you're elderly. I think we talked about this earlier. I guess maybe that's only in Western people that that's a phenomenon. I don't know. Maybe it's our diet or something. But, you know, I think that there are limitations with um, just looking at urine osms as well and saying, well, it's not super, super concentrated. Um, maybe there is some sort of like partial DI or nephrogenic DI. Sometimes you might fall into that trap, but maybe it's really just a, a concentrating defect because they're old. <laughs> right. And he, and he brings this up when he talks about using urinosum in the diagnosis of pre-renal disease. He said it should be over 500. Mm -hmm. It should be pretty specific. 
that if it's unlikely if you have ATN that you're going to be able to get your urine osmolality that high, which I think is a pretty good assessment, but it's not sensitive for exactly the reasons Amy said, that there will be people with CKD who will be volume depleted, who will not be able to get that urine osmolality that high. I think in the elderly, I feel like it's going to happen to me any minute, but you can't, uh, it's not that you can't dilute at all. So you should still get under 100. You just, maybe you can't go to- yeah. 44, you know, or 50, the, lo- the, you know, some of the lowest that I've seen, maybe you only get down to 60 or 70 or 90, we should still be able to get under hundred. Okay. He then goes on to, uh, Osmolality's, uh, cousin specific gravity urine is going to be eight to 10% heavier than an equal volume of water. So the specific gravity is going to be 10008 to 1010. For some reason, this was news to me. I feel like I didn't understand this relationship between specific gravity and osmolality. Like I, I know like a more concentrated urine has a higher specific gravity, but like the linearness of that correlation just hadn't stuck. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. So it's the speci- uh, specific gravity of 1.010 um, represents urosmolality of about 300 to 350 milliosols per kg. So uh, a quick trick is to take uh, the last two digits of the specific gravity and multiply by 33 or 30 or 35. It can give you a ballpark idea of what the urinosmolality is. Granted that the patient doesn't have glucosuria or some other component that may throw you off in, in the urinosmolality. So a specific gravity of 1020, you take the last two digits, which is 20, you multiply them by 35 and you get 700. That's correct. Yeah, it's, you got to be careful though, because it's weight. It's really weight relative to water, not particles relative to water. So, you know, you get any, any, any contrast in there, which is contrast has four iodines, a very heavy molecule that's not going to add that much, but it's going to, to the osmolarity, but it's going to add a whole lot to the, to the uh, specific gravity. Anytime I see a specific gravity greater than 1040, they pretty much assume they've got contrast. It's like a little parlor trick. It's that's one of my favorite. Uh, whenever I see that, I always uh, ask the fellows or the residents. I was like, uh, "What's the highest specific gravity you've ever seen?" They're always like, "Oh, ten thirty, ten thirty-five. I was like, "Well, this is ten sixty. You know <laughs> what's going on here?" And then I finally get them to, to get to. Oh, there must be something heavy in there. I'm like, something heavy enough to maybe stop X-rays. And they're like, "Oh." <laughs> <laughs> But we don't even really do specific gravity, right? I mean, we are using this chemical reaction on the dipstick as a proxy for that. They're not. They're not looking so through the scope. It's not <laughs> like the old. I mean, there was a scope. And- yeah, no. I we used to. You know, you had that little um, cute. I forget what it's called. That little. The hygrometer or whatever. The hygrometer. You can use it in, in homebrewing. You have the same thing. You might put a little drop on and look at it. Yeah. Homebrewers are going to know all about this, but I'm not cross using the homebrewing equipment on the urine. They're separate. Separate hygrometers. <laughs> sure, Josh. Sure. So, so Melanie, you're right. It's a, it's a dipstick, right? I don't know. I, I, I think it's pretty lame to use a specific gravity for what you really need, really want to know for an osmolarity, but. Except for you get it for free. And you can do it conveniently. I guess, but I don't put much weight. I mean, if I if I see 1.003 or something, I know it's pretty dilute, or, or 10.30, I know it's pretty concentrated. I, I don't, maybe I should, maybe I should be doing the 30 rule. That's Roger's second good pun. He doesn't put much weight on it. <laughs> JC, you were saying something? I, I was just making a comment that this, my, this relationship between osmolality and specific gravity was probably useful or relevant 
back 20, 30 years ago when access to an osmometer wasn't, you know, wasn't readily available. It's a pretty cheap instrument these days, and your ordinary osmolite is not expensive at all. But if you go back, I remember back in medical school, being in a third world country in Peru, it wasn't easy to just get an, you cannot just order urosmolality in, in, a, in a, you know, hospital uh, from the uh, Ministry of Health. You know, it was a public indigent people. So yeah, my attendees will, will uh, just look at a urosmolality gravity. Um, and I wonder how that still happens in area of limited resources, uh, particularly in all the continents. I don't know the answer to that. But. Now that we see all this glycosuria with SGLT2 inhibitors, I haven't been paying attention to specific gravity. Is it? Does it really go up that much? I haven't even bothered to look, you know, because I see the, some of the highest urine glucoses I've ever seen. When I see this thousand, I mean, you know, granted, if they're diabetic way out of control, it might be a thousand, but that, we don't see that much anymore. But a patient comes to clinic, they don't know their medicine, but I can look at their urine and I can tell they're on an SGLT2 inhibitor, but I haven't really paid any attention to their urine specific gravity. It does make the point here that glucose doesn't, it's not, it is heavy, but not like that heavy. So it doesn't add as much, but it does add. Okay. Then he finishes the chapter off with pH. He says that pH normally varies with systemic acid base status. It should fall below 5.3, usually below 5.0 with systemic metabolic acidosis. And that if it's above 5.3 in adults and above 5.6 in children, you should be suspicious for a renal tubular acidosis in the presence of metabolic acidosis. And then you can also, and then he also points out some other uses of the pH. He says you can look for, you can monitor the urine pH if you are trying to treat metabolic alkalosis and you should see that rise as you get successful at that. And that uh, similarly, you should look for uh, an elevation in the urine pH with the treatment of uric uh, uric acid stone disease in which your pH goal is going to be 6 to 6.5 to shift uric acid to the more soluble urate by adding, uh, by increasing the urine pH. And Melanie, you promised us a rant. Oh, no, not not a full you rant. Did. But I just, I, I put in the show notes a very cute paper from Mitch Halperin that's called Renal Tubular Acidosis, RTA, Recognize the Ammonium Defect. This is RTA. And it says, and forget, and forget is spelled with a PH, forget the urine PH. And it's... <laughs> And the point—that's great. And the point of the paper is that um, we're getting uh, distracted from the key concept that that Josh alluded to earlier. That we really need—I think it was Josh—that we really need to focus on the defect, which is the ability to transfer ammonia into the urine, and that you can get fooled by the urine pH alone. Although, you know, yes, um, those patients may not be able to maximally acidify their urine. Their big problem is um, the amount of ammonium excreted. So Now, we're, we're not going to get into RTAs now, obviously. Uh, Please but, don't. Yes. Uh, but no. <laughs> Nothing is better for 1130 yeah. at night than let's start RTAs. That's why I'm it's behaving. An hour and 45 Did you minutes notice? into the recording, we are not going to start our, our adventure into RTAs. Yes. So I just want to mention quickly... Uh, one of the examples that I personally uh, look at a urine uh, alkalization of the urine is when you have patients, for instance, on intravenous methotrexate that are receiving bicard reps and you have to try to achieve an alkaline urine. We may follow the urine pH in this scenario. 
And the other scenario, surprise, surprise, uh, is during microscopy, for me, is very important because sometimes you're looking at a crystal under a microscope and the crystal may not look like the textbook. But if the urine pH is 5, you're more likely to be in front of a uric acid crystal. So if uric acid is 8, that's probably going to be a struvite or some sort of triple phosphate crystal. So it is helpful uh, to look at urine pH when you're looking at uh, crystalline structures of unknown identity. I'll use a urine pH. I'll use urine pH sometimes if I'm, you know, really trying to nail a proximal RTA. You know, I'm not quite sure what's going on. There might be some tubular defect, and it's not quite clear. You know, give them a couple amps of bicarbonate. If they have a proximal RTA, their urine pH will shoot up to eight in in no time. So, kind of a little, uh, a little time. I'll use it, but. Laddie, how do you use the pH? I have to say that I think the one that has been the most helpful is when I, in addition to what has been mentioned, but the when we get the super physiologic pHs, like when you get something like really out there, that really, for me, stimulates like look for a, a, a UTI, like get a urine culture, because we always have to remember the impact of bacteria also on the urine pH. Urea splitting organisms, what a proteus. Clemsiella. Doesn't come split? Yeah. Yeah. E. coli can do it. Yeah. A lot of them do it. Proteus is what we were taught, but a lot of them, a lot of them can do it. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Is that going to be the last word or anybody have some? What do you got, Melanie? No, I was just going to say that um, we do have a little acetic acid in the, in the lab. And for party chicks, <laughs> we do like to um, take an alkaline urine with calcium phosphate crystals and put a drop on the end of the cover slip and watch them dissolve. None no of it party is, like a Beth is. Israel party, is there? Wow. That party doesn't stop. <laughs> so fun. Wow. <laughs> you just oh. throw, throw caution to the wind and just... I sent you pictures. I just sent you party. pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and then Live we brought up. out the acetic acid and it was off the hook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Melody, you might not want to tell that story anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I think you should. As long I as you don't make students. decisions on it. No, actually, n- not CLIA approved. So none of, none of our la- none of our urine laboratories. Yeah, it's all off the books. Don't charge for those. Okay, hmm. this has been another <laughs> successful recording of another chapter in the book, and we are into part three. It should be good. Uh, the next chapter is uh, like volume depletion or something like that. Is it? I will tell you, I think he mailed it in on this yep. chapter. This, there's yeah. only one dog experiment where they bleed out dogs. I was hoping for at least six or seven serious <laughs> animal rights problems with some of the studies, maybe even some medical student bleeding out. But I was very disappointed in the the 1950s research in the next chapter. I was hoping for more uh, uh, torture and maybe no animals and med students but uh yeah but there's it's it's soft it's soft it's, it, but it's long it's a long chapter an hour and a half on tonight our hour almost two hours today thank you very much um so here the key here is you're not going to stop recording but you're not supposed to close your window until you get a message that you fully uploaded